This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 17th of April 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Well, coming up in the next half an hour or so, Simon Brook will take us through the newspapers and then... This is a sort of rallying moment for many, a time to accept that they kind of like their country and even some of its on-paper bonkers institutions. Our editor-in-chief reflects on what the death of Prince Philip means for a fractured nation. We'll have a conversation with Mohsen Zaidi, the award-winning author, commentator and lawyer on World Book Night, which takes place next week. Plus, Andrew Muller looks back on the week and will examine a new project lighting up five bridges on the River Thames in London. All that coming up on Monocle on Saturday. But first, here are the headlines. Russia has asked 10 US diplomats to leave the country in retaliation for Washington's expulsion of the same number of Russian diplomats after alleged malign activity and suggested the US ambassador return home for consultations. Washington said its own sanctions were payback for Russia interfering in last year's US election, cyber hacking, bullying Ukraine and other alleged malign actions. Authorities in Myanmar will release 23,184 prisoners from jails across the country today under a New Year amnesty, a prisons department spokesman said, though few, if any, democracy activists arrested since the February the first coup are expected to be amongst them. The hugely popular Aung San Suu Kyi faces various charges, including violating an official secrets act that could see her jailed for 14 years. Britain's Queen Elizabeth will bid a final farewell to Prince Philip, her husband of more than seven decades, at a ceremonial funeral today, with the nation set to fall silent to mark the passing of a pivotal figure in the British monarchy. And our weekend edition email bulletin includes thoughts on the holiday chances dodging pandemic restrictions and suggestions of the more esoteric bookshops to seek out in Australia. Sign up for your own copy at monocle.com forward slash minute. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, now let's have a look through the newspapers. And Simon Brook joins me. He is, of course, the journalist and communications consultant, as well as a very regular correspondent here on Monocle 24. Good morning to you, Simon. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, let's start with Ukraine. Now, this is uh, Vladimir Zelensky, of course, who is the ex-television comedian, as somebody we got a lot of fun out of. But it's all very, very serious now, as The Telegraph reports. It is, yeah, very serious. Um, yes, uh, Mr Zelensky has given... The Telegraph, an exclusive interview um, talking about the build-up of Russian troops on the uh, border with Ukraine. Uh, he describes this as a crisis. Uh, uh, describes this crisis as a test for Europe and the and the West as a whole. Um, and he's backed uh, President Biden's offer for a meeting with Mr. Putin face to face at a summit at a neutral European venue this summer. Um, but Mr. Zelensky, as you'd imagine, uh, uses very strong words. He says that this is a conflict which will decide whether the true democratic order will be preserved, whether the principle of the inviability of borders will work, and whether there will be the freedom of nations in choosing their own destiny. So 
reading this uh, this exclusive interview in the Telegraph, you get a real sense of, of fear, actually, that Mr. Zelensky and presumably uh, his fellow uh, countrymen and women feel um, about whether, you know, what is happening on the border here. Um, and the paper points out that experts are divided over whether this is just a show of force by Russia or whether it's part of a real um, genuine inv- an invasion plan. Mm. And of course, he's very, very keen for the country to join NATO because that would offer them some measure of protection. Yes, absolutely. And again, he during the interview, he, he makes that clear that uh, uh, he reiterates his call for uh, for the country to join NATO. Um, this is presumably one of the reasons why he's doing the interview, just to, to sort of help with that understandable lobbying. But of course, in so doing, uh, and the whole question of whether Ukraine joins NATO is actually more, pro- is sort of a provocation to Russia. And I think um, that is certainly um, one of the things that uh, is uh, understandable, as I say, from the point of the of Ukraine, but certainly will be a, a red flag to, to President Putin. And uh, Zelensky point, Mr. Zelensky points out that Russia is not just using this military pressure, but he says there are also waves of disinformation, spread of destructive conspiracy theories, attempts to interfere in political and electoral processes in other countries, cyber attacks and things. Uh, this really is a very strong, very powerful um, demand, if you like, by Mr. Zelensky that, that the world wakes up and, and takes uh, more attention, pays more attention to what is happening uh, on the border. And of course, we have seen that particularly today reflected in our headlines where Russia's expelled 10 diplomats in return for the diplomats that America expelled because of bullying of Ukraine, plus all of those other crimes that you detailed. Um, Let's move on to the Financial Times. And this is a piece that I always love, Lunch with the FT. And today it's David Spiegelhalter, who's Professor of the Public Understanding of Risk at Cambridge University. And I must say, he comes across as such a lovely man as he he slurps his oysters and dips his sautéed potatoes in the in the in the garlic sauce. He, he really does, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to say, the idea of anybody who's willing to take on a job that involves the public understanding of risk—I mean, that you've got to admire his his ambition, haven't you? Uh, given that you know that is uh, quite a challenge. But yeah, exactly. I think it's lovely the fact he's eating oysters, which probably—I mean, as foods go—must be some of the most risky, aren't they? <laughs> I don't know, but there's a yeah, lovely description here of um, how he uh, sets up a, a, a table. We're, we're having a rather eccentric seafood feast on the tidal island of Mercy, uh, according to the piece. Yeah, uh, this is in Essex. Spiegelhalter has brought along a picnic table, deck chairs, cutlery, crockery and glasses, a striped tablecloth, patchwork cushions and even some flowers from his wife's allotment with a little vase to put them in. So, yes, exactly. <laughs> a wonderful eccentric. Um, and, you know, as I say, it's quite an ambition to try and help the public to understand risk. Um, the paper points out that he, he made the headlines last May when in the UK he blasted the daily presentations of COVID-19 statistics at number 10 Downing Street, in particular, the daily test totals, which he described as number theatre. They were reeling out lots of big numbers, which I knew were desperately unreliable. And it gave a spurious sense of pre- precision and an importance to these flaky numbers, he says. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just really interesting. I think one of the sort of the, the ideas that comes across from this uh, wonderfully eccentric lunch, which apparently went on for four and a half hours, so shows what a character is. Uh, he's quoted as saying, one has to have the critical ability, which involves examining one's feelings and examining motivations in order to understand numbers. It's so easy to come to the wrong conclusions 
or any conclusion. So I think this idea of being sort of mindful, if you like, when you're reading about statistics is, uh, is you know, really interesting idea, something I'll certainly try and do anyway. And that leads us perfectly to the New York Times and a piece about the Yale happiness class. Tell us more. Yes, exactly. So uh, this class, formerly known as rather uh, romantically, imaginatively, a psych 157 psychology and the good life is actually turned out to be one of the most popular classes to be offered in the in the university's 320 year history. So far, some 3.3 million people have signed up for it, according to uh, the website. Um, and basically it uh, asks students to do things like uh, among other things, to track their sleep patterns, keep a gratitude of uh, sorry, keep a gratitude journal, perform random acts of kindness, and take note of whether over time these behaviours correlate with a positive change in their general mood. So you can really understand why, um, you know, in terms of a, a sort of an academic course, if you like, that this should be so incredibly popular. But um, the question it made came into my mind is. I mean, we all want happiness, I suppose, but is it, is it a human right? I mean, are we chasing after something and trying to do it in a kind of academic uh, box ticking way that, that actually is going to lead us ultimately to, uh, to disappointment, I suppose? And I can, it, can it be taught in a class? Yes. Well, absolutely. And there are quotes. So one, uh, one student says he was disappointed that the class was a sort of review of the kinds of obvious good advice you might get from your grandmother. Get enough <laughs> sleep, drink enough water, just do your best. So, yeah, exactly. So um, some people might fail the course, if you like, by not feeling happier. But I suppose it's not, it's, you know, the American Declaration of Independence is, talks about the pursuit of happiness, isn't it? And perhaps it's not, it's not getting there. It's, it's the journey that, that really counts. Absolutely. Simon Brook, I wish you a very happy weekend. And to you too, Georgina. Thank you. <laughs> this is Monocle 24. Now let's round up the things we learned this week with Monocle's Andrew Muller. We learned this week that former US President Benito Cartman has every intention of endowing his hopefully lengthy retirement with the same dignity and gravitas he brought to his nation's highest office. And that, by golly, the party he took to tea with the Hatter is going to keep right on enabling him. For we learned that the National Republican Senatorial Committee has invented a special award just for him. Aww. Donald Trump, we learned, is the inaugural recipient of, it says here, the annual Champion for Freedom Award, which, we learned, comes with a silver bowl which might well prove handy for keeping his peanuts in. It's like being in the room. We learned that, judging by Trump's expression in the photos of him accepting this receptacle, that he was genuinely delighted. And well he might be, given that many, if not most, of the honours he has previously boasted of receiving, including Michigan's Man of the Year and the Bay of Pigs Award, do not, as such, exist. Still, if we cross the Atlantic... All stops out on the sound effects this week. We learned that over-enthusiastic obsequies for outgoing office holders were not an exclusively American neurosis. In the UK, we learned that we were due at least another week of garment rending and teeth gnashing at the passing of Prince Philip, which reached a kind of apotheosis of something when the website of National Rail was temporarily rendered in sombre greyscale. 
Seriously, if you were any more on a roll this week, you'd be pate. This we learned from National Rail's piteous whining when widely and deservedly mocked was a mark of respect, if of the kind of respect that it is impossible to imagine any relative of the departed Duke of Edinburgh noticing or caring remotely about, unless their curiosity was sufficiently piqued to ask a passing butler what a train even is. We then learned from further enjoying the incredulous abuse directed at National Rail on social media a serious point, which is that removing colour contrasts actually makes a website impossible to navigate for some sufferers of visual impairment, which in this instance effectively reduced Britain's rail network, the rail network of Britain, to an incomprehensible and unusable shambles. Imagine that. Come on, it was right there. We learned from still further afield, look, do a noise of a globe spinning or something, knock yourself out, that Prince Philip was being mourned even more earnestly than by National Rail on one Pacific island. The few hundred people of Yaunanan, a village on the atoll of Tanna, which is part of Vanuatu, keep up, there'll be a quiz afterwards, have long revered Philip as both a spiritual figurehead and as one of their own, the legend holding that Philip, the son of an ancient mountain god born in a volcano, set forth from Tanna sometime before World War II to steward and protect the Queen of England. Absolutely none of which is any dafter than much of the mawkish glop cranked out by the media of an allegedly vastly more advanced people this last week or so. We learned that Yanannan had hauled its Union Jack to half-mast and that the villagers were embarking on extensive mourning formalities which will likely not be sonorously narrated for interminable broadcast by some pompous jackass phoning in a whispered facade of funereal seemliness and therefore learned that the folks of Yanannan may have much else to teach us. For example... We learned that among the many entities that the Philip-fancying islanders could clearly offer instruction in elementary ceremonial dignity is the Royal Australian Navy. The RAN launched a new oiler ship, HMAS Supply, named Fact Fans after one of the very first fleet of boatloads of seasick shoplifters who founded the modern Australian nation. We learned that someone somewhere decided that cracking the usual magnum of fizz across the bow wasn't going to cut it and enlisted the services of a troop of frantically twerking cheerleaders. It sounded like this. It's worth looking up the video, not so much for the capering and gyrating, which resembles a semi-choreographed rendering of those moments just after Australians realise they've put their picnic blanket on an anthill, but for the total bewilderment of the assembled brass hats. We learned mostly that the RAN really has no sense of occasion, or at least feel for the honkingly obvious. If you must launch warships with a dance routine, and we're not militantly opposed to the idea, there is surely only one choice of soundtrack. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Mullock.
now let's hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, with his weekend column. Being a royal correspondent never sounds like much of an ambition for a journalist. You get to write about a small group of people who would prefer never to talk to you unless their hatred of their family has momentarily risen above their disdain for the media or they're in need of some urgent PR. Plus, everyone imagines that your house is full of commemorative dinky cups and saucers and tea towels festooned with images of various jubilees, now failed marriages and stern royal residences. Well, perhaps it is. And if you attempt to have a bash at doing some critical reporting on the topic, you will soon be put in your place by your fellow royal commentators, whose ranks include those arch snobs who know every detail of palace protocol, or at least pretend to when invited onto US television shows. Her Majesty is very fond of a hobnob biscuit, which must be served on a plate from the tea service given to her by Queen Victoria by the Archbishop of Lima in 1897. If no hobnobs can be found, you may serve her a curly-whirly. Today, the whole of this Debrett's-wielding mob will be clucking away on every channel as Prince Philip's funeral service takes place at St George's Chapel in Windsor Castle. Yet, while we mustn't get too giddy here, there are plenty of people who couldn't stand the man and can't tolerate any of this royal malarkey. There is another fascinating story in play here today. The recent warm, generous coverage of the Prince's life and achievements and even celebrating his so-called gaffes, has seemed to be motivated by something more than the man alone, something harder to define, but potent. After a year of the pandemic, of grubby politics, of people being taken down for the slightest verbal slip, of endless stories about Brexit and why Britain is doomed, and I speak as someone who voted Remain, of talk of the union with Scotland breaking, and that Oprah interview, it feels that this is a sort of rallying moment for many, a time to accept that they kind of like their country and even some of its on-paper bonkers institutions. These things usually prove fleeting, but whether it's sport, anniversaries of great events or a moment to mark the end of a well-lived life, people need moments when there is something approaching a national mood. Perhaps that's why, in a fractured Britain, with pubs reopened and the vaccination programme proving a formidable success, that the death of a 99-year-old has become, for some, a moment to be a little proud of who they are. Well, at least until Monday. I went to Zurich to see our chairman and editorial director, Tyler Brulé, to discuss a big project for Monocle and start planning how it will all unfold. It's been the longest time that we have not seen each other in person since we launched the magazine in 2007. Here's what I can report. He's changed his look. His hair is down to his waist. And were they extensions braided in? He has a sort of Tulum hippie vibe going on. Has had both of his ears pierced and was sitting oddly after getting a tattoo on his rear. Calm ye, of course not. He was just the same annoyingly sparky, engaged, dapper fellow as always. But it's strange that no matter how many phone calls and video conversations that I've had with all sorts of people in the Monocle network, you don't really know what people are thinking until you see them. 
and in conference call land, you also end up missing a whole world of spontaneity, serendipity and speedy inspiration. We managed to plot, plan and achieve more in a few short days than would have ever been possible on a screen. I've noticed this again and again as people have come back to the office or I've met up with friends who've been hiding away for months. You align in seconds and you can gauge people's moods with nimble-toed accuracy and clarity. And as ever, it makes me think that we need to be together with friends and colleagues as soon as the rules allow. Mention of the Archbishop of Lima always amuses me, hence sneaking him in a little bit earlier. It's because there's a story of dubious authenticity about George Brown, the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs in the government of Harold Wilson in the 1960s. Brown liked to drink and was said to have humiliated himself while at a welcome reception in Latin America. It was claimed that he had approached a woman dressed in red and asked her to waltz, only to be told, I will not dance with you for three reasons. The first is that you were drunk. The second is that the band is not playing a waltz, but the Peruvian national anthem. And the final reason is that I am the Cardinal Archbishop of Lima. Enjoy your weekends. Many thanks there to Andrew Tuck. This is Monocle 24. Now, World Book Night takes place on Friday the 23rd of April. It's the 10th anniversary of this initiative, which seeks to celebrate books and reading. And it's run by the Reading Agency in partnership with Specsavers. This year, the theme is Books to Make You Smile, in response to the impact of COVID-19 on mental health and well-being. Well, one of those books to induce feeling good is A Dutiful Boy. It was named a Guardian GQ and New Statesman Book of the Year, and it provides personal insights into issues of diversity and inclusion, mental health and justice. Well, joining me to talk about the book and the wider campaign is the author, Mohsin Zaidi, who is uh, an award-winning writer, a commentator and a lawyer. Mohsin, thanks so much for, for taking the time to talk to us this Saturday morning. Uh, your, Thank you for having me. Your book, A Dutiful Boy, has been described as a book that will save lives. It's essentially your life story, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's uh, a memoir about growing up in... Uh, Walthamstow, which is uh, a suburb of, of East London, um, and becoming the first person from my school to go to Oxford University and then becoming a barrister. But in the backdrop of all of that, um, I was raised in a devout Muslim household and at university I came out as gay. So I guess it's it, it draws upon lots of different parts of identity and I guess tries to address how you live as one person rather than as all these different separate people that society kind of wants you to be. Mm. I mean, it's a story really of, of, of family love. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I describe it as, as a love letter to my family, actually. So um, one of the things I write about is, is, is coming out to members of my family. And um, obviously the theme of this year's World Book Night is, uh, is books to make you smile. Um, and when I told my youngest brother, who's about 13 years younger than me, um, that I was gay, his response um, as somebody who loves football, him, not me, um, was to say that he would already knew and that he wears rainbow laces because of me. And rainbow laces is the campaign to cook, uh, to kick homophobia out of football. 
So um, there's kind of loads of moments like that in the book, which I do hope will make people smile. Mm. And how did your parents deal with it? How did they overcome those religious and, and cultural barriers? Um, <clears throat> so initially, it was a real struggle. So when I first told my mum, she ended up having to take a week off of work because she couldn't cope with the way, the trauma. And it was, it did feel like trauma to her. And then uh, a couple of years later, when I told my dad, um, in, he started off by being really supportive and telling me that he loved me just the same. And then a week later, uh, there was a witch doctor at the house trying to cure me. So it started off as a very complicated situation. But um, one of the reasons for writing the book is that it defies traditional notions of what it means to be um, a, a child of immigrants in, in a Western country, because um, the beauty of, of, I guess, my family's story is that they have come full circle now. And through a lot of painstaking conversations and a lot of love and holding on to each other, we have found a way through. And now I'm, you know, pleased to say that they love my fiance Matthew more than they love me. <laughs> um, a Dutiful Boy is published by Penguin and it's part of World Book Night, as we said. What happens on that night? So um, there's a reading hour that starts at 7pm and um, everyone comes together to to read a, a book. I don't think it has to be from the, the list of books that are selected by World Book Night. But the fantastic thing about the programme is um, in the run-up to World Book Night, the uh, reading agency working with Specsavers, they, they give away 100,000 books to prisons and hospitals and care homes. And the idea is to just get lots of people reading that might not otherwise read or might not have access to, to books in the same way. Um, so I guess it, it's an opportunity to, to, to take what is essentially quite a solitary act and build a community around it for just one night of the year. That's wonderful. And, and reading hour is, I think, 7 to 8 p.m. Yes. On, the, on that Friday night. Um, and, and it's kind of you know, obviously all over social media, hashtag reading hour. Yes, exactly. Um, and there's lots available online about the different books um, that you can read. But as I said, you don't have to read one of the books that's on the list. Um, you can just choose choose one of your, your, a book you've already read or something that you're planning on reading and, and join in. Mm -hmm. uh, and those books that are on the list, obviously your your book is one of them. They are all books that that make you smile in accordance with the theme. Yeah, and they they have different ways of doing that. So th although the theme the theme is quite actually a broad one. I mean, like Shakespeare's on there with Much Ado About Nothing. Um, then there's uh, uh, one of my uh, really one of the books that I love, which is, um, I think it's Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda. Um, I was trying to, because they turned it into a film, so I was trying to remember the book's name. Um, so there are, there's a whole host of different um, books that you can read. And there's also Common People, which is a collection of essays by uh, working class writers. So there's there's something for everybody. Absolutely. Uh, most thank you so much for, for coming on to talk to us. And I do hope our listeners will take the opportunity to join in with World Book Night, which is on Friday, the 23rd of April. And also pick up your book, A Dutiful Boy, which is published by Penguin. Right, staying in London and the banks of the River Thames. Here, to complete the Illuminated River project this spring, five bridges were lit earlier this week, including Waterloo, Westminster and Blackfriars Road. The public art installation transforms the city's iconic bridges with a soft, undulating lighting scheme.
Monocle's Maylee Evans spoke with Chris Waite and Alex Lifschutz from the architecture firm behind the project, Lifschutz Davidson Sunderlands. But to start, let's hear from Leo Villarreal, the artist behind the luminous design. We approached each bridge, first of all, studying what's there already. So looking at the illuminations. And in other cases, we looked at the Olympics, for instance, or some special event where there was some kind of illumination or some attempt at it that was temporary and studying that. And some other historic things that had, you know, on Westminster, there was illumination underneath the bridge that wasn't there anymore. Or these medallions that go across, you know, the, the expanse, which had lights behind them and, and not ceased to work at some point. So taking those cues from the historic and in the cases when we've been able to speak to the architects of the bridges, it's been amazing. And, you know, fortunately, we have Alex talk to about the Golden Jubilee footbridges and ways of, of illuminating those. And we also had a collaboration with Fosters and Partners on Millennium and understanding what the intention was with the, with the lighting, which is so important. Uh, you know, Sir Norman Foster wanted to create this effect of this blade of light going across the Thames inspired by Flash Gordon, which I love this kind of pop cultural reference. And uh, but in the end, the illumination of the bridge really kind of was lacking. And, and so we were able to speak with Andy Bowe and the, you know, many of the original project architects about what those intentions were and kind of fix it uh, and make it right. So it was a very long process, but I think it's it's been exciting to, to take a look at the bridges and to do something that is thoughtful and well-engineered and energy efficient and reduces light pollution and, and does all these things that, you know, illumination should do in the hope that it will stand the test of time and be up. And it's very extremely well engineered and I'm so grateful to our partners for all of that. It's something very exciting and, and we're really thrilled to share it with, with everyone in London. And what Leo was touching on there is the fact that both Chris and Alex have a long-standing existing knowledge of the River Thames. So maybe we'll start with you, Alex, and, and move on to you, Chris. But you've worked in the South Bank area for many years. So how did this knowledge come to the fore on this particular project? As Leo said, we, we collaborated on the lighting of Golden Jubilee bridges, which we designed, which were completed in 2002. But we've been working on the river and continue to work on the river for a long period. There's a tremendous culture around the river in London and people who have fed into it and who thrive on it, whether it's the bridges, whether it's the foreshore, the history of the, the river. And, you know, because we're Londoners and we've worked on the river, we've imbibe some of that and we continue to work on the river and so it sort of comes naturally it's a bit like it's in plain sight where leo has an advantage over us is that i mean he knows london well but he uh, he can see everything fresh We're, we see things only when sometimes when they point it out to us because they're in plain sight because we know them so well the bridges i mean we thought we knew them well at the start of the process again this idea of twig gathering information was all important but i think where we got real insight was talking to people who knew the bridges better than anybody which was the engineers who worked on them you know they would be able to tell us things we would, we would never have found out ourselves for example on westminster with the artwork we need um certain places around the bridge or on the bridge to put certain pieces of kit that allow the artwork to illuminate and, and one of those is you know a series of pcs and and uh, various other components and we were talking with the engineers on westminster scratching our heads as to where we were going to put all this kit and then one of the chaps said well there's a room underneath this statue here so he took us round down the statue of Boudicca adjacent to the bridge and he sort of pulled out this pack of keys 400 keys on this you know 10 minutes going through the keys found the one that worked opened this door I mean the stench was 
something <laughs> something special. But um, as soon as he opened his door, there, there it was, this, this watertight, um, weatherproof room that we could use. Uh, we would never have known that without speaking to these people. So it was really interesting for us as people who know the area to actually really get to know the bridges intimately with these, these people that helped us along the way. I mean, Leo, this isn't a piece of artwork that's constantly changing. Could you tell me a little bit more about the, the sequencing involved? I understand it's generative, so it doesn't go through a set repeating pattern. Well, we've been developing our own custom software for over 20 years, and it, it's really exciting to be able to make these kind of bespoke tools that I can then use to create the sequences. But the within that, we, we've really engaged a lot of chance and, and randomness in the process. So the sequences are, are presented in a random order. And this is the first time that we're really engaging in generative sequences, meaning that previously I would see something and, and I would record it and we would play back the recording. But in this case, it's actually making it on the fly. So we've really been able to evolve in such a way that I feel comfortable with the generative. And it's kind of a, a very new direction for, for me and for us in the studio but opens up all kinds of possibilities. And, and I guess the ultimate goal is for people to be able to look at the artwork again and again and see new things in it. Because it's abstract and non-repeating, it's very open-ended and people can make of it what they want. It's not just the artwork itself. It's all about the, you know, the Thames. Is the tide high or low or is it smooth? Is it reflecting? Is it foggy? Is the moon out? All these, all these environmental factors play into it as well that those things have actually inspired the sequencing and I've learned things night after night uh, being with the bridges and, and observing the rain and the fog and that actually changed some of the patterning that I created. So it's intended to be a mirror of the, of the kinetic activity around it and the, the color, the palette, all these things. It's really a kind of a meditation on London and its bridges and all the things that are going on. Uh, but everything is so lively around the bridges and, and why shouldn't the bridges actually have some sense of movement and, and time? And, and, and over to you, um, Alex, this work isn't in a gallery setting. It, as Leo mentioned, there are cycles of the day and night. There's an um, ever-shifting backdrop and there are lots of environmental factors at play. I wonder from your side, what were some of the ecological factors you, you had to keep in mind and maybe some of the considerations when it comes to sustainability for a project of this scale? We were all um, very concerned to make sure that we had a, a lighter carbon footprint than any um, artwork could reasonably expect and also than, than any lighting scheme that had previously been on the bridges. So uh, we, we call it sort of hairdryer uh, amounts of electricity per bridge, you know, between 5 and 15, something of that order of kilowatts per hour because Leo's sequences aren't um, necessarily bright all the time and they fluctuate. The amount of energy is actually very modest. I mean, it is domestic, to be clear, in comparison to what was there before. And that's partly because of, as I say, his undulating and fluctuating sequences, but also because of the LED, the very, very efficient LEDs that we use. So that's the starting point. And then directing the light so it doesn't hit the water in a way that creates a barrier for fish uh, moving up and down, doesn't irradiate the riverbanks with light so that um, the creatures that are spawning there become food for predators. Working with the London Wildlife Trust to really understand the ecology, bat and bird surveys and so on. For Leo's art to work, it, it, it wouldn't be right if it had to be the brightest thing in the world in order to be seen. 
And we felt very strongly from the beginning, we pitched with Leo at the competition for the idea that we would, at the same time as creating this wonderful artwork, also think about ways in which we could soften the surroundings. Cities are navigated by people looking for landmarks. That is traditionally how you look for a church spire, you look for a railway station. But the way in which cities have developed and light has developed is that everything is lit and everything is lit as brightly as possible. So that's very much a, a thing that we have become concerned with, which is to try and modulate, to say what we call save the night, to actually create a situation where his artwork and the night and the ecology can flourish because actually the night is dark. We don't want it to be a version of the day with lights on. And Leo, you've done other bridge projects such as the um, San Francisco Bay Bridge. I mean, this illuminated river project is, is of a different scale, I suppose, but... What have you learned from engaging with this river in, in such an intimate way? Well, it's been such a pleasure to think about this project. From the very beginning, from when we were doing the competition, I arrived in London late at night from New York and dropped my things off, and I immediately went down to the river, and I started walking and walking and walking and, and realizing that there was so much of it. You could really walk along the banks and experience the bridges from so many different points of view, and I was very interested in how people were using the, the riverbank. And so that observation was, was very interesting and quite different than the Bay Lights, which is, you know, it's uh, 1.8 miles long and 525 feet tall. So it's enormous, completely different scale. Uh, so there was an intimacy to the Thames and, a, and so much beauty. And I thought, you know, these bridges are so magnificent, but they just disappear into the inky darkness. And what could we do to kind of make them visible again? It's not about just putting a ton of lights on it. That's not the point at all. It's something about doing the least amount possible, but to kind of enhance and, and to show the beauty that's there. Doing something that's very elegant and slow moving as well. As if someone were to kind of look at the illumination, they think, oh, is it even changing or moving? But once you start to kind of look at it for a longer period, you start to see, oh yes, it is. I'm always inspired by the patterns of the body, like the, the, the length of a breath or the heartbeat or these things that we know very well and bringing some of that tempo into the sequencing. So I hope it will help people kind of slow down and to see in a new way. And it's this journey as you walk along, you see one bridge and then the next and then the next. So it's really this progression, which I think is so beautiful. And I hope that people will take the time to, to take that walk and, and to really appreciate this magnificent city that you know we get to all you know enjoy. That was Leo Villarreal, and before him we heard from Chris Waite and Alex Lifshitz. They spoke to Monocle's Maylee Evans. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. 